Am I on? Yeah, I'm on. Good morning. Yeah, it's a little bit more than I was expecting. I, I thought everybody was going to take uh, uh, Eric up on his preaching last week to just rest from your labors and take off today, but thank you for showing up. Um, uh, last week, um, Eric spoke on resting and, and just taking time to enjoy life from our labors. And as I've been listening to the series <clears throat> and listening to Eric last week, it, I mean, so many different ways I could have I gone with Ecclesiastes 11. Ecclesiastes, the whole book, is packs a wallop. And it's just, it's just a heavy, heavy book. But I was determined, I was determined that I was going to find joy in the book. And as I did, lo and behold, this book is the preacher does encompass joy in this book. He just, he, he does, he exudes joy and we sometimes don't see it. We think of Solomon perhaps as having lost his mind, just totally frustrated by the things that are happening in life, frustrated by all the mysteries of God, all the, the just the junk of life that just presses down on us. But truth of the matter is, Solomon, the preacher, was directing us, leading us to a point where we must come to realize that the only thing that matters in this life is to love God, to know God, to love God, to trust God, and to pursue God and wisdom and knowledge, only then will we be satisfied. Only then will we find peace and rest for our souls. So today, as we continue our series on striving after the wind, like I said, the topic is somewhat related. And my, my, I decided to call it, uh, what did I call it again? Oh, yeah, choosing joy. Choosing joy in the midst. And I'm going to, for disclosure purposes, I'm going to let you know I'm in the midst this morning. I am struggling. Like, what happened to summer? I, I just, I, I, I lost summer. I, I have no clue. I'm ready to go back to school and teach these kids and be with these kids. I had orientation last week, and I'm like, wow, I need to find summer. I need to go back to summer. I don't know if I'm ready. So... I'm struggling, so bear with me, okay? Um, as we read through this book, to some of us it is filled with chunks of great wisdom alongside a bunch of other good stuff, okay? To others, it's quite confusing and sounds somewhat contradictory at times, okay? And we struggle to comprehend some of the preacher's musings. We struggle with this. For those of you who have sat down and read Ecclesiastes, there's some hard things in here. But in all its complexities, there's one thing that must not escape us, and that is throughout the book, throughout the whole book, he is calling us to be joyful. He is. He is calling us to be joyful. So this morning, I've chosen the title again of Choosing Joy in the Midst. I want us to look at some of the key points in hopes of cracking the door slightly, slightly allowing us to begin to dig deeper into the joy of Ecclesiastes. In my studies of Ecclesiastes, I felt how Peter felt regarding uh, Paul's letters, that there are some things in them that are hard to understand. And I'll be the first one to admit to you, there's some things in here that were, that were hard for me to understand, so I just kind of like steered away from them, okay? <laughs> so I'm gonna try my best to give you what I got. I'm sure some of you have felt the same, but these studies have also fueled in me and they've stoked a fire of joy. They really have. And those of you who know, we have been going through some times this summer, and that's why, probably why summer went by so fast. But as I've studied, as I've gotten into Ecclesiastes, 
I found that the Spirit of God was stoking a spirit of joy within me as I'm beginning to realize the magnitude of what the preacher was feeling and what he was trying to convey and what he really, really wanted us to grasp. There is nothing, listen to this, um, the preacher says, there is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toils. That's Ecclesiastes 2. I commend joy for man who has no good thing under the sun, but to eat and drink and be joyful. Ecclesiastes 8, 15. Go eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love. Ecclesiastes 9, 7 through 9. Yet the preacher of joy was also a realist. He kept it real, okay? He felt great evil and he stood vexed and frustrated by his inability to understand all of God's purposes. Who of us cannot relate to that? I mean, frustration, like why God? We do ask the why question. You can pretend like you don't, but I know you do. Why God? And then we come to our senses most of the time. When I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on earth, how neither day or night do one's eyes see sleep, then I saw all the work of God, that man cannot find out the work that is, in, that is done under the sun. However, man much, excuse me, however much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. That was Ecclesiastes 8, 16 through 17. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly, and I perceived that this also is but striving after wind. For in, in much wisdom is much vexation. And much wisdom, that hit me, and much wisdom is much vexation. And he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. To whom much is given, that's the scripture that came to mind after I, I read this, to whom much is given, much is required. Pray with me, would you? Father, we are your children. We are here and we realize or are realizing that nothing much matters under the sun, but that we should trust your son and the sovereign work which he has completed in our behalf. Father, we admit this morning that but for your underlying grace and mercy in this world, everything would undo us. So we thank you for showing us our strivings after the wind and the vanity of it all. Lord, quench our thirsty souls this morning with the joy of your Holy Spirit. Lord, I pray that you would become, that we would become so keenly aware of your providence in our lives that we can't help but experience the eternal joy that comes with knowing that you are our sovereign God and Father, that we can and do possess this joy even now, as your children. Amen. So we're told, I am going to be all over Ecclesiastes. I do have a foundation in Ecclesiastes 11. But I'm just going to show you how brilliantly, I mean, it may seem like a mess that the preacher threw together here, but how brilliant. Ecclesiastes, the Spirit of God just penned these words, and it was brilliant how it was done. We are told in Ecclesiastes chapter 1 and chapter 7 that we live, we live in a crooked, there we go, we live in a crooked world that no one can make straight by any effort, by any level of effort. We have this crazy jumbled mess, and I'm going to throw this mess out at you right now. We have unstable jobs. We have orphans. We have judicial corruption. We have blown tires. We have broken legs. We have sex trafficking. 
we have leaky faucets, we have failed adoptions, we have monthly bills, we have envy, we have, uh, we have project deadlines, we have rainy vacations, we have broken marriages, we have chronic back pain, yes, pride, we have pornography, we have slippery roads, we have severed relationships, we have selfishness, we have racism, we have beast things, we have abortions, and the ever-present death of loved ones. That's just what we have in this world, and that's some of what the preacher was faced with as well. Yet even in the midst of it, he could still call people to rejoice always in the pleasures of life and to do so by recognizing them as a gift of God. Yeah, all of that mess, recognizing it as a gift of God. I want to look today at the preacher's call to rejoice and to consider how, to be how he taught joy was possible in this cursed, crooked, and confusing world. This morning, my foundational focus are going to be on Ecclesiastes chapter 11, verses 7 through 8, which are about the importance of sustaining God's conscious joy. Sustaining a God-conscious joy. And in Ecclesiastes 11, 9 through, I'm going to dabble a little bit, Pastor Eric, into 12, 1, you know, because I feel it's really connected, <laughs> which clarify a method of maintaining God-conscious joy. Those are the two pillars of what I'm going to be presenting this morning, okay? So in verse 7 through 8, it reads, Light is sweet, and it is pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. So if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all. But let him remember that the days of darkness will be many. All that comes is vanity. So Ecclesiastes 11.7 asserts, light is, is sweet and it is pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. In Ecclesiastes, to be under the sun is to be identified with the realm of human breath, to be identified in the realm of human breath where we toil as a result of the curse. Under the sun is the sphere of what is universally true of all humanity, believer and non-believer alike. Toil under the sun, live under the sun. Everything that happens under the sun happens to believer and non-believer alike. I think we've heard that before. In our world, the preacher says the sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. Morning light, away, morning light always triumphs over the dark nights. And then in the midst of the blackness, the sun is already hastening. The sun is already making its way speedily to its final destination. One writer puts it this way. For those experiencing darkness in the crooked world, past delights in the light awaken fresh desires for dawn. Like the sweetness of sleep after a long day's work, the sight of light is tasteful, it's beautiful, it's delightful. This book uses light and darkness metaphorically. On the one hand, the preacher associates darkness with both trials and with death. Uh, listen to Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verse 11 through 14. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expanded in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind. And there was nothing to be gained under the sun. So I turned to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. Then I saw that there is more to gain in wisdom than in folly, and there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I perceive that the same event happens to all of them. The preacher says in 2.11, Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expanded in doing it, and behold, all was vanity. 
and striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun because everything in this old, cursed creation ends in death. There is no real gain under the sun. I know, it's, it's, I, I can see by your face, it's a heavy thing. And I thought, seriously, I thought of jokes I can interject in between, uh, lighten the mood, but nope, not here, nope, not here. We need to feel the impact of what the preacher is talking about here, okay? Uh, Nevertheless, the preacher thought about the place of wisdom and madness and folly, and he reasoned that there is more to gain in wisdom than in folly, and there is more gain in light than in darkness. Here he parallels wisdom with light and foolishness with darkness, and he claims that wisdom and light supply real gain. Wisdom and light is what keeps us going, keeps us encouraged, keeps us pressing towards the mark of the high calling which is in Christ Jesus. Wisdom and light is what does that for us. Now in Ecclesiastes 2.14, the wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. Though the fool lives under the sun, he lives his life in darkness. It's always night. It's always dark for the fool. The fool is never in the light. He may think he's in the light, but it's always dark for the fool. Yet the wise have eyes on to see light, so it is the only the wise who can say, light is sweet. It's only the wise that can say that. Light is sweet, and it is pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. Notice first that if God grants that we live many years, we are supposed to be people who rejoice in them all. There is a time to be born and a time to die. And between those two poles, the preacher calls us to rejoice between birth and between death. We are called to rejoice push through, rejoice, trust, rejoice, gain wisdom, gain knowledge of the sovereign, providential God, and rejoice. The preacher calls us to rejoice in times of planning and plucking, killing, weeping, and laughing. The preacher continues to call us to rejoice. In times of mourning and dancing, embracing and refraining, seeking and losing, the preacher calls us to rejoice. In times of silence and speaking, loving and hating, war and peace, the preacher calls us to rejoice. For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under the sun. But in all our many years, come what may, we are called to rejoice. The preacher stresses also, it is pleasant for the eyes to see the sun because every person should remember that the days of darkness will be many. The days of darkness will be many. That just hit my heart. It's like the days of darkness will be many, we are told. And some of us have experienced already many dark times. Here remembering, here, remembering is directed to the past, but toward the future. As the wise person journeys through life, he should expect sufferings and trials. Because the days of darkness are many, it seems most likely that the preacher means that in one's lifetime, a person should, a person should expect to experience pain whether through personal trial or through death of others, whatever it may be. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. Like Psalm 23 reminds us, surely goodness and mercy shall pursue us. Goodness and mercy is pursuing us. 
and will, and we will overcome. Our great shepherd will make it happen. We should be clear here that biblical joy is not bound to circumstances. I say it again, biblical joy, there's no binding of that, no connecting of that based on your circumstances. Regardless of our circumstances, we are called to be a joyful people. Regardless of our circumstances, we're called to be joyful. If you can rejoice in the midst of dark trials, you are tapping into something that is beyond, something that is beyond under the sun. You're in the next level. You're in the next realm. If you're able to rejoice in that trial you're going through right now, take heart because Scripture tells you you're in another level now. You're going beyond. It's no longer I, but Christ that lives within me. You're in that next level. So rejoice. If you're not there, push and get there. There's no choice for the Christian. You have got to get to that place where all else, the trials, the tribulations, all you see is the cross of Christ. All you see is the cross of Christ. And you're pursuing, you're pursuing, you're pursuing wisdom, you're pursuing knowledge, you're pursuing a sovereign God. Because the days of darkness are many, it seems most likely that the preacher means did that already. Are you able to see the light of God's goodness today? Are you enjoying God's grace? If so, embrace it, remember it, for it will serve you when the storms come. I know that God takes me, Seski, to ever real times in my life where beyond a shadow of a doubt, I knew that this was God holding me up because if it wasn't, I would have been broken, undone. I was speaking with Daniel one day, and I was telling him, you know, grace is, is easy for me to understand because I know that without it, <laughs> I know who I would be. I know with everything that encompasses my life, it has got to be God's grace that has given me joy. It has to be. There's nothing else that makes sense to me because I would be undone, broken, but for his grace. The final statement in Ecclesiastes 11.8, all that comes is vanity. The SV's translation is drawn from the Latin Vulgate vanitas, which suggests all of life is in some way pointless or futile. It's what we read in both Ecclesiastes 1 and 2 and in Ecclesiastes 12.8. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. We've been hearing this throughout the whole series. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. It's reminding us. It's reminding me. I don't know about you. That, you know what? This place here, this is not my home. I'm just a passing through. All of it is vanity. Focus. Find your focus. Find that point. Find the cross of Christ. Find it. But I don't think this totally captures the preacher's meaning. He does not talk as if he believed life was vain. 
okay? The preacher, he doesn't strike me as saying that life is all vanity, it's, that it's vain. In Ecclesiastes 11a, he tells us, light is sweet and it is pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. That's a good thing. There's nothing vain about that. There's no vanity there. In Ecclesiastes 9.4, he says that the living can find hope and that wisdom has advantage in the way it preserves life. There are not words, these are not words of someone who thought that life under the, under the sun was pointless. If all was meaningless, why did he experience such deep grief? Why would he care if life was meaningless. Why? Why? Why did he call people to fear God and to pursue wisdom if indeed all of life was meaningless? Why would he do that? Why would he exert himself in this book and trying to get you to see, trying to bring you back to that place where you recognize that there is a providential, sovereign God. Why would he be doing that if he thought that life was meaningless, that it was vain? He did not. He did not think that. For the preacher, this life is filled with meaning, meaning that we must seek to grasp, even if our seeking is incomplete. Indeed, it is because it is not pointless that we can rejoice. This life is not Pointless. You were bought with a purpose. It's not pointless. Let me say it again if you're doubting it. You were bought with a purpose. The blood that was shed for you, for me, was for a purpose. This life is not pointless. It isn't. I submit that the preacher opens and closes this book with the declaration, all is breath. He meant that all things in this world were mysterious. They were enigmatic. There's an enigma to it. It's just like, wow, what is going on here? Why storms? Why hurricanes? Why the destruction? Why death? Why? There's a mystery that we will only know when we are face to face. And you have got to be satisfied with that. If you let anything else determine your joy, you will not find joy. You have got to be satisfied with this mystery that God is sovereign and he's providential. And you know what? I stand firm on that. Trust and faith. You have to. This is why six times in, he accompanies the term with the phrase striving after the wind or shepherding of wind. I have seen everything that is done under the sun and behold, all is vanity and a striving after the wind. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly, and I perceived that this also is but a striving after the wind. Trying to, get in, trying to get our minds around all that God is doing in this world is like trying to shepherd the wind. I think Eric has said that before. Just imagine you trying to catch the wind. What folly is that? That's that's what it's like trying to figure out what God is doing in this world. Don't frustrate yourself like that. Don't do it. Don't do it. All of life is a mystery. It's an enigma. Yet we are given glimpses out of God's mercy and grace. He has given us glimpses of who he is. It's been said that I can spend a lifetime and a lifetime and a lifetime reading through this, and the mysteries will only, that, that would reveal to me will only have been a drop in the bucket. His word is wrapped in mystery. 
It's wrapped in mystery, yet he chooses to reveal himself here. Verses 9 to 11. You know what? Now, whereas um, Ecclesiastes 11, 7 through 8, we talked about the sustaining God-conscious joy. And verses 11, 9 and through 12, 1, this helps clarify a method of maintaining the God-conscious joy. There are, there, are, there are all practical, these are four groupings of imperatives. We are to choose joy, live wisely, cast away our cares, and remember our creator. Choose joy. You choose. I don't want to jump ahead. Cast, live wisely, cast away cares, and remember your creator. This is how we can maintain God-conscious joy in the midst of life's mysteries. Let's consider each of these real quick. In Ecclesiastes 11.9, Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer in the days of your youth. Choosing to rejoice is easier when the days are bright, isn't it? When the days are just full of good things, we, we can rejoice very easily. When we learn that our husband, but it's much more difficult in the night when our crying baby will not be consoled. When we learn that our husband or wife has lost a job. When melanoma reaches stage four. Nevertheless, in this text, the first step in experiencing God's conscious joy is that you have to want it. Some of us like wallowing in the slop. Why we do. I, I, I used to be that guy, you know. Woe is me. No. You have to want. It's a choosing of God's joy. You have to want it with all your heart, with all your might, with all your soul. Why would you not want that peace that surpasses all understanding? Why would you not? You have to want it. You have to grasp for it. Remember, Ecclesiastes 11, 7, 8 already identified that God gives grace to help us in our quest. Past encounters with his goodness stoke the fires of unrelenting joy when the shadows rise. When the dark shadows rise, remember, remember, he has been faithful. Remember his faithfulness. Go back. Remember his faithfulness. We must choose to rejoice, but this choice is empowered and made possibly possible only in the context of grace. You can't do this on your own. It is a grace that God gives us. You can't conjure up joy. You just can't. Not when you're in that deep, dark place. You can't. It's a grace that God gives us. <clears throat> Seven times in Ecclesiastes, the preacher calls this reader to pursue joy. When he says rejoice, what does he mean? What does it really mean to rejoice? Follow me here. Let's start with a definition. I'm going to give you a definition. To rejoice is to find heartfelt pleasure in God and his gifts amidst both prosperity and adversity. Ecclesiastes 11, 7 through 8 already highlighted that we are to sustain joy through both seasons of pleasure and seasons of pain. But joy is not just a mental activity. You don't just put on your exercise suit of joy and go for it, okay? Because the heart is also a place of emotion. Look at the three occurrences of the word heart and feeling in the heart. In Ecclesiastes 11, 9 to 10, the heart gladdens a person. Let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Next, the heart guides the wise person. Walk in the ways of your heart. Finally, the heart feels, and we must free ourselves from carrying troubles in order to maintain joy. Remove vexation from your heart. 
remove vexation from your heart. To rejoice is to find heartfelt pleasure. And the preacher states that step one in maintaining God-conscious joy is, there's a song that says it, I choose joy. I choose joy. You have to choose joy. Rejoice and let your heart cheer you. Now, if the nature of joy is heartfelt pleasure, the object of joy is God and his gifts, of course. Our joy in eating that ice cream sundae or drinking our favorite beverage or diving into that porterhouse steak should be one done for the glory. I, I did that for my son. He's a meat eater. He loves meat. <laughs> should be the done for the glory of God. God gives gifts and the power to enjoy them so that we can turn and remember him. Don't just get lost in the gift, but remember the giver. Keep our eyes on the giver, and then the joy is pure when you remember who is giving you the gifts. We should eat and drink for the glory of God. When we remember the giver, we turn our delights of a porterhouse steak, like I said, playing with the baby in a new house, we turn all of that into praise. It's turned into praise. It doesn't blind us. We know where it comes from, and we give glory to God for it, and we enjoy it, as Pastor Eric preached last week. You now can expand, we now, we can expand our definition a little bit, okay, of joy. So that to rejoice is to find God-given, heartfelt pleasure in God, in his gifts, amidst both prosperity and adversity. We added something here. To rejoice is to find God-given, heartfelt pleasure in God and his gifts, amidst both prosperity and adversity. Next, walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes, but know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgments, Ecclesiastes 11.9. So back in the Pentateuch, Moses characterized his audience as stubborn. The Israelites were stubborn. They were unbelieving. They were rebellious. Okay, And because of this, he charged them, and numbers, not to follow after your own heart or your own eyes. He knew they were lost. So you know what? You guys need to take your, your hearts out of this equation because your hearts are right now deceitfully wicked. Okay, so he's telling them, take your heart out of the equation. Here, however, I suggest that the context is very different. The rest of Ecclesiastes strongly clarifies that the preacher is by no means commending an unrestrained worldly pursuit of pleasure. In Ecclesiastes 11, 7 through 10, it is important to note that the preacher is addressing the wise, not the fool. He's addressing the wise person, not the fool. He said, it is pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. And in Ecclesiastes 2, 14, he observed, the wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. Only the wise see the sun as a manifestation of God's goodness. Only the wise sees the rain as a manifestation of God's goodness. Only the wise sees those adverse things in life as a manifestation of God's goodness. The fool does what? Complains. Tag, it's raining Oh, man, it's too hot out here. We do it. Guilty. We do it. All right? So what do we know about the wise in this book? The wise's heart will know the proper time and the just way. Similarly, Ecclesiastes 10.2 stresses the wise man's heart inclines him to knowing, inclines him to the right, but the fool's heart to the left. So if the wise person's heart is bent Godward, knowing the just way, it makes sense why the preacher would call him to walk in the ways of your heart, 
and in the sight of your eyes. These will be the ways of God. Yet there is a stated caution. We must be sure to make every step, every decision, every click, every purchase, every glance, knowing that for all of these things, God will bring us to judgment. You have to be sure, okay? I'll say it again. We must be sure to make every step, every decision, every click, every purchase, every glance, knowing that God is going to judge us, whether good or bad, okay? Ecclesiastes 119, Dwayne Garrett notes that awareness of divine judgment turns the pursuit of joy away from crossing and to sin. We say it again. The awareness of divine judgment turns the pursuit of joy, because we all pursue joy, but it turns the pursuit of joy away from crossing into sin. Because life and work is a gift, and because God alone brings joy, we are accountable to know, to, we are accountable to how we engage it. Looking at the time. Okay, let's jump to this. Ecclesiastes 11.10. Remove vexation from your heart and put away pain from your body. For youth and dawn of life are in vanity. The verbs to remove and to put away identify that finding joy at all times, even in the days of darkness, requires that we decide not to allow the burdens, the confusions, the vexations, the troubles of this life to wear us down. We have to purpose that. The preacher is not calling us to act as though life is a party when in fact it's painful for some at times. No, he recognizes that there is a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance. He makes allowances for that. He recognizes that. We don't ignore human troubles but we must not allow them to consume us. Again, don't let it take over your heart. Don't let it isolate you. We must not allow our troubles to consume us. I need you to understand, I know that this thing I'm talking about here is in no way easy. I know it's not, but this is how much it's important. We must, we must choose not to allow these mysteries of life, these enigmas, these byproducts of the fall and of the curse, we must not allow them to consume us. We must not allow them to steal our joy. We, as God's children, we as redeemed of Christ, we cannot walk among those who are lost looking as though we are beaten all the time. We just cannot do that. We're not called to that. I'm not telling you to fake it. I'm not telling you that. I'm telling you to call on the one who can give you the grace to exude that unfathomable joy, that unfathomable peace. There's no faking here. God, I can't stress this enough, God gives you this ability. So, Christian, rise up and be joyful. It sounds like I'm getting ready to end, doesn't it? No, I'm not. <laughs> but I am going to jump here for a little bit, all right? Um, so much to say here, but I don't want to. Let me say this, though. Knowing that God, we don't ignore human troubles, okay, but we must not allow them to consume us. Don't be anxious, Jesus tells us. And then Paul tells us here, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, 
let your request be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds and Christ Jesus. Knowing, Peter tells us, that God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble, Peter exhorted, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God so that in the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties upon him because he cares for you. So, remove vexation from your heart and put away pain from your body. That is step three in how we maintain a God-conscious joy. And don't forget your creator, briefly. Don't ever forget your creator. That goes into chapter 12, verse 1, okay? There is no higher way to maintain our joy than to remember, and I'm going to make this brief. I'm not even going to get into this. Remember your creator. Remember God. Remember God in the grief. Remember God in the sorrow. Remember God in the frustration. Remember God in the anger. Remember your creator. In conclusion, let me just summarize some main takeaways. First, Ecclesiastes 11, 7, 8 calls us to savor the sweetness of life. When God's goodness and grace are like the warmth and brightness of the sun on, on a weary soul, memorialize these moments, for they are God-given fuel for sustaining God-conscious joy, even, though our many, even through our many days of trials. The delights we enjoy in the good times stokes fires of desire and hope in the darkness as we rest confident that the God who causes the sun to rise and go down is hastening the sun to, to, to the place where it, it will rise again. The sun will rise again in your sadness, in your darkness, in that place where you feel frustration, where you're just lost. The sun will rise again. Second, teach us to maintain, Ecclesiastes 11, 9, 11 teaches us how to maintain God-conscious joy. We choose to rejoice in God and his gifts. We live wisely in the fear of God. We cast our burdens on God, knowing that he cares. We remember our creator to rejoice then. Final definition of rejoice. To rejoice then is to find God-given, God-approved, heartfelt pleasure in God and his gifts amidst both prosperity and adversity as fuel for hope and brighter days and as a foretaste of eternal pleasures beyond judgment. Rejoice today remembering that God has, what God has done in your past and resting confident that he will, he will work all things for the good and the future. You can rejoice in that. Rejoice today trusting that the Lord guides in the desires of all who fear him. He guides the desires of all who fear. Rejoice today knowing that God is able to meet you in your pain and that he will light and he will shine a light in your life again. Rejoice today knowing that your creator is also your shepherd and he is even now hastening the sun to the place where it will, where it will rise again. Let us pray. Father, Psalms 5 tells us, but let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy and spread your protection over them that those who love your name may exult in you. For you bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover him with favor as with a shield. Father, bless and strengthen your righteous children, they whose hearts are stayed on you. Amen.